going to read the Word of God together. We've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're at an appropriate chapter this morning because we're reading chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, which concerns the Lord's Supper. Let's hear God's Word. Paul writes, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink the, drink the bread and, sorry, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we should not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we might not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to contemplate and reflect on Your Word today, we ask that the words that are spoken and the reflections of our hearts would be acceptable to You. Amen. Anyone like Iron Brew? Some Iron Brew fans? One or two? Well, I've got some Iron Brew sweets here, and uh, they were lying on the, the kitchen counter, so I picked them up. don't know whose they are, but they said, the tiny, tasty, chewy sweets. Sounds good. And then I turned them over, and it says, fruit-flavored. 
chewy sweets, sugar, glucose syrup, coconut oil, orange juice from concentrate, acids, citric acid, maltic acid, starch, cocoa butter, maltodextrin flavoring, yum, thickeners, gelatin gum, cellulose gum, gum arabic, emulsifier, E473 colors, beta-carotene, beetroot red. You know, suddenly I'm losing my appetite. Yeah. Food. I wonder as we read that passage today from Paul writing about the Lord's Supper and eating together, that there's words there that we were very familiar with. For I received from the Lord what I passed to you, that Lord Jesus, the night you betrayed, took bread. And we're thinking, this is a great thing. This is, this is the words we use of the institution. And it's fantastic. It's inviting us. Words we use all the time when we stand at the table to say, come and, and, and taste and, and, and receive, and it's welcoming. But had we read the small print? Those words come out of a chapter, don't they, where Paul also says, whoever eats and drinks it unworthily sins against the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to say, you drink and eat judgment on yourselves. That's why many of you are weak and many of you are sick and a number have fallen asleep. And that's, by the way, not fallen asleep like the sermon was quite boring and the church was warm that Sunday means you've died. Suddenly, it's a bit like reading the small print on the food and thinking, hang on, this is dangerous. Might even be toxic. Dangerous food. It's actually one of the reasons that in our Reformed culture, we often joke about communions, but that there used to be literally a fence around the table and it used to be that we, we had communion very infrequently. And the reason for that was the elders could go out, not to talk about the football, but the elders could go out and check that you knew your stuff before you came to communion. You weren't playing cards or doing anything that was wrong because you might come in an unworthy manner to communion. It's one of the reasons we had preparatory services on a Friday because our, our Reformed fathers, and I, they were fathers at that time, by the way, were very much... We want to keep you safe. And this is dangerous. We better have a health warning on it. Nobody must eat it all in the wrong way. But you see, one of the things that's important to realize is context. Because this whole thing with its warnings isn't written about a, a Presbyterian culture and a Presbyterian co communion. And, you know, nobody in Paul's day was singing, Ye Gates or putting on a white tablecloth, or, 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 or some of the things that we've connected with it, what color the tie it is, and all these other things. Nothing to do with that. Think back, and this is what we've been doing as we've been going through the book of Corinthians to see the context. What's going on here? And what you've got is a small church in Corinth. There's probably just a few dozen of them. And uh, Paul's been there and he's preached the gospel, and he's planted this little church. And when he's there, he tells us in, in his letter what he's preached to them is Christ crucified. He's told them a story, an amazing story, and yet also a story that's mind-blowing, that a guy who's been stamped on by the Roman Empire has been executed as a common criminal, and is a nothing, has been raised by God to be 
the one who rules over heaven and earth. And in this passage, he says to us, not only did I preach Christ crucified, I preach to you what I received from the Lord. And he then tells them the story that we are familiar with, the story of the upper room. We're back in Jerusalem in a room with, with disciples on that Passover as Jesus took the bread and they shared the cup and He said to remember Him. And that's what they were doing in, in Corinth as, as, as they were supposed to be gathering to, to share the Lord's Supper, to remember what happened in that upper room, to tell the story of Christ crucified. But it raised a practical question. Same it does when we, when we have communion here. Immediately, there's some logistical questions, aren't there? There's like, how are we going to serve that? How are we going to do that? And which elder comes up first? And who's chopping the bread? And, and, and is it wee glasses or a common cup? All the practical stuff, because actually, it takes a bit of organization. And it wasn't, that bit was the same in Corinth. One of the questions that they would have had is, where are we going to se celebrate the Lord's Supper? Actually, it's the same question that, that Jesus' disciples had asked of, of the Passover. If you read back in the Gospels, where are we going to celebrate this meal? And Jesus had said, well, I've got this room, and go and find a guy that's got a donkey, and it's a long story, but they got there. And it's the same question that they would have been asking back in Corinth. Where are we going to celebrate the Lord's, the Lord's Supper? Where are we going to have it? And we might today say, well, we have it in D.L. St. Andrews, or we have it down in Cross Hill, or, or what building will we use? But in Corinth, there were no buildings. Well, there were buildings where they went for sacred meals, but they were in the temples where they worshipped Zeus and Athena and all the gods and all the pagan gods that they'd worshipped before. That was no good. So, where were they going to meet? And the answer is the only buildings they had would have been the places they lived their homes. And they couldn't meet in the slave's house because the slave slept on the floor of his master's house, and they couldn't probably have met in a house from one of the poor of the church because they probably lived in what was the equivalent of a single end or a, a, a tower block flat, and you might get a couple, a dozen people in there, but you, you, these were small houses. You weren't going to get a few dozen folk to gather in, in a place like that. So, where were they going to meet? And if you remember, as we, we've done this story, uh, Paul had said at the beginning of this, this uh, the letter, as, as he referred to the Corinthians, he'd said, think of you when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. And what he's saying there really is, you know, most of the Corinthian church are poor. They're just ordinary folk living in a city and all its squalor and all its difficulty. But you know, we can read a little bit more into that because when you say not many of you were rich and influential, it implies that probably one or two were doing okay. In fact, we know a little bit more about that because there's a chap called Gaius, who, sorry, uh, Erastus, who is mentioned um, as being somebody that was in Corinth. And Erastus, it says in Romans, was the city's director of public works. And he lived in, in Corinth, and in fact, they found in Corinth, dating from the same time period, I mentioned this before, an inscription which says, this pavement was built by Erastus at his own expense. And it's almost certain, the archaeologists believe, that this is the same guy. So here's at least one person that's in the Corinthian church that's a local government official, and he probably lives in a nice house. He can afford to, to pay for a pavement and, and, and put a little plaque on it. 
And there may have been some others in the church as well who had a little bit of money. Stephanus seems to have had a house where the church met at times. There was someone called Phoebe who lived just down in the village nearby in Cancria. And Phoebe, it, it, Paul says later on, is a benefactor of the church. She's obviously someone who supplies some food. And so it is almost certain that they would have been meeting in the house of one of the few folk that were fairly well off. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. Because we know a little bit about that as well. Paul is, as he writes this letter, furious because what he's observing, and we don't quite understand all the facts, but when they gathered to eat, some people were having lots and lots of food and getting drunk. And some people came hungry and left hungry. What's going on here? And we seem to find out a little bit more if we look at the context because we know a little bit about Roman rich houses, elite houses. And what Roman elite houses would have is they would have a dining room. They called it a triclinium. And in the triclinium, there were normally three, you can see it there in the picture, there would be a big table and sort of three sides to it. And, and when you had your dinner guests, your important dinner guests, they would come and they would lounge on this and eat food off this table. This was the sort of way you did it. But these triclidiums were built for probably about nine people. And then if you were rich, outside the triclinium, in the center of the house would be an atrium, a big hall area. And that could gather 30, 40 people if you were fairly well off. But we know a little bit more than that because we know that it wasn't just that they had these different places so that when you had a party, you could have your rich friends in the triclinium around the table, but you could invite more people who had to stay out in the atrium. And we know from some of the Roman writers a little bit about the culture of dinner parties in the Roman world when you invited your friends, because it wasn't just that certain people got to sit in the triclinium around the tables and other people had to sit in the stalls, as it were. It was also that there was a culture of giving the people who were around the table the best food, the best wine, and the best service. Here's just a little quote um, from the writer Marshall, who's writing in the first century about the same time as the letter to the Corinthians. Let me read this to you. That's fine. Why didn't I get the same dinner as you? You had oysters fattened in Lucrine pool, and I cut my mouth sucking on a mussel. You had mushrooms. And I got pig fungi. You set to work with delicious fish, and I got bream. A golden turtle dove fills you up with its outsized rump. I'm served a magpie that died in its cage. Why do I dine without you, Ponticus, when I'm dining with you? And writing in the first century also, Pliny, the younger, recounts an experience at a banquet where he and a few others received the best dishes while everyone else got cheap scraps of food. And the host even divided the wine into three flasks of varying quantities depending on where you were sitting. You see, this is the culture of the Greco-Roman world. It's that you invite people round for a meal and lots of the poor would have gone to these humiliating meals because they got some food. They had a chance of getting a dinner that night. 
But it was all about status and hierarchy and showing off and making it quite clear who was in chop and who was at the bottom of the heap. It was a culture in Roman. And it would have appeared to Romans and Greco-Romans like the people in Corinth as quite normal. It's just the way you do things. One of the definitions that the anthropologists use of culture is the way we do things around here. Just I-been. It's the way we do things. It's the values that we have. And Paul, when he writes to them, says, outraged. You know, folks, this is not the Lord's Supper you're eating. You see, there's a pattern here that we've been seeing as we've been going through Corinthians. There's a pagan worldly culture, and it's a culture that's shaping the church, a culture of bragging, of status, of power, a culture of sexual ethics, a culture of cliques and competition, a culture of going to temples and enjoying idol food, a culture that is shaping the church. And what is happening is people have become Christians, but they're still shaped by that culture outside. They're trying to add on their Christianity as a hobby, but they're going to do it in the way we have I done things around here to a greater or lesser extent. And Paul in this whole letter is saying to the Corinthians, no, it should be the other way around. As you think about Christ crucified, as you learn the stories of what Jesus is all about, as you understand what He's done for you, that's the message that should shape the culture of the church, not the world outside. In fact, more than that, because when you live that out, not just in your church, but in your lives, in all of your lives, the hokey-cokey we said, put your whole life in, whole life out. When you live like that, the culture of the world stops shaping you, and you start changing the culture of the world around you. And by the way, that's what the church has done throughout the years and throughout time. The story of Jesus at the center of it. And very practically and down to earth, Paul is saying, when you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, forget the cultural assumptions of the way that you've done things. Forget the dining room etiquettes of Roman society. Forget the Presbyterian way you've always assumed it'll be. And think for a moment about the upper room. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed took bread, and when He'd given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body that is given for you. Now, we hear those words, don't we? But it's allowing those words to shape us and to change us, to change not just what we believe in our hearts, but to change how we live. And Paul is telling this story again. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, an hour or two before He would go to Gethsemane, and Judas and the soldiers would come, and God was handing Him over as He was giving Himself up for us. And time and time again, these words, remembrance of me, just as Jesus had said in that upper room, when you do these things, remember me. Remember that I died for you. Remember that I poured out my life for you. And keep remembering this every time you meet. And by the way, the Lord's words almost imply that you will do this celebrating of the bread and wine every time you meet, not four times a year. 
every time you meet, you'll remember what this is all about. Think about this, because this is what Paul's been saying through this letter. Jesus gave Himself up for others. He who deserved all the honor and all the glory poured it all out. And if that's at the heart of your life, what does that say, rich man, about how you treat the poor man? What does that say, person who's worried about your status and your enjoyment and the way you like things to be in the culture that you enjoy, about how you will treat those around you? Paul's bringing us right back to the cross. And yes, there's the theological message here that Jesus gave Himself for us that we might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life, but there's also the practical culture that believing that creates, how we live and how we love for the gospel. If the gospel doesn't humble you, if the gospel doesn't change you, if the gospel doesn't remove your pride, then you've missed the whole point of it. Paul speaks about Jesus saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, and a covenant is a new relationship. And yes, we know as we come and we, we, we drink this and eat this that it's about our new relationship with God, made possible by Christ's death on the cross. That means that we can call Him Father, that we can know that we are, that we are saved in Jesus Christ, that we've received the Spirit. It's very personal, but that new relationship, that new covenant is also about a new people. You can't take one without the other. I've had folk coming and saying, I don't want all this stuff. I just want my communion when I come to it. No, the communion is here. It is in the new relationship that we have. But we always have an amnesia. That's why Paul says remembering, because we have an amnesia. We forget what Jesus has done, and we keep coming back to the cultural assumptions and the way that we do things and the way that we treat people and the things that we put first. And I don't want to go to the meeting because, well, actually the culture is telling me the football or the, the whatever it is is more important. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. We have to keep coming back to that upper room. I, uh, you know who that is, don't you? I know, get, I know the women are all swimming at this time. I'm afraid it's 105, but that's beside the point. It's Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. There's a scene in Indiana Jones, uh, one of the movies, where he's looking for the Holy Grail. Now, if you haven't made the connection, the Holy Grail is the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. And uh, in the story, he's brought to a place where he looks at all these cups. And there's gold cups and silver cups and gemmed cups and a whole lot of cups. And he has to choose which one is the Holy Grail. But before Indiana Jones can choose it, his opponent, the Nazi, comes up and he says, I'm going to go first. And he looks at all the cups and he says, It'll be that one. And he takes the one with all the jewels and the gold on. He says, that's the cup of the king of kings. And he drinks from the cup and his head explodes. It's really gross if you want to watch it. Don't let the kids watch it. And Indiana Jones looks at all these cups in all their silver and their gold. And he knows if he gets it wrong, it's fatal. And he picks up a little broken 
wooden cup. And he says with great profundity, that's the cup of the carpenter. You see, we get caught up in how we do communion and all the rest of it, and we forget the very thing at the start of it. On the night he was betrayed, in the upper room, Jesus took the bread. What was that about? It was about poverty in which the gospel is found. Not the trappings, not the gold, not all the things that we have put on it. And you see, all of this brings us to that food warning on the packet. Don't eat this in an unworthy fashion, says Paul. Examine yourself that you might discern the body. Now, we can take that in all sorts of ways, and Christians have, that it's all about being worthy, being good enough. So, you better not come if you've done something wrong. Absolute rubbish. The heart of the cross is forgiveness and grace. If you come today thinking you are unworthy, that's the only way to come. By the way, if anyone thinks that they're worthy enough to take this, don't bother. You will be eating judgment on yourself. We come because we're unworthy. So, what is Paul referring to then? Is he referring to we have to understand that this is the body and blood of Christ and we get into a whole debate about transubstantiation and consubstantiation and things that Christians have killed one another over for the years? No, I don't think that's what he's talking about at all in the context. It's to miss the point. Discern the body, he says. Folks, look around you. Look around you. Where is the body of Christ today? Is it in this cup or these glasses? This is the body of Christ. Is it not? Discern the body of Christ, for unless you recognize those around you, then you are missing the point of what Jesus was doing in that upper room. And when we fence the table and say, you're not good enough, and you're too young, and you're not allowed, and you've not been here often enough, are we discerning the body of Christ where Jesus said, come, receive, for I love you? This table, as we recognize the body, does so many things, and I could preach on each one of them, but just very briefly. To discern the body is to discern the body that's here. It's also to remember that we're part of an international body, and it's great that there are folks here from different cultures and different places, because that's really important as well, because this sacrament, done one way or the other, is done in every denomination, in every place in the world today, and as we do this, we don't just do it in our cultural way in this place and argue about how we do it. We are doing something that belongs to the whole church of Jesus Christ. It's been done by African people in small villages with wooden cups. It's been done by rich folk that we can't contemplate. It's been done by people that are being persecuted. It's been celebrated by folk in little locked rooms in Gaza and in Israel today. It's been celebrated by Orthodox folk in Ukraine. It's been celebrated in every place, in every way. And together, as we come, we discern the body. And there is something else as we discern the body, and that is the body is not only in all places, it's in all times. I think one of the things that we often miss is that when we come to this table, we are anticipating that great 
feast in the kingdom of God where we will sit with the saints and the apostles. I'm always struck as I take communion that I am doing that as part of the communion of saints. And I am recalling and giving thanks for those that have gone before me. And there is sometimes a tear in our eyes as we do that too. That is to discern the body. But it is to put in the center the death of Jesus. Not a tragedy, not a mistake, but a sign of love, a transforming story. For He did this for us and gave Himself for us that we would know Him and celebrate Him and be shaped by the culture of what He did for us in that upper room, in that garden, on that cross, in that tomb. Amen.